Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. The development and leveraging of technology surely must be one of the most defining elements of the 21st century. I mean, the amount of data we're able to collect on life and living is nearly infinite. We as humans living in this time and space are fortunate to have so many tools at our disposal, insofar as gathering data and information, in order to make informed decisions. That being said, effectively communicating and presenting what we uncover as far as key findings is still the more critical element in this equation of ultimately affecting change for any particular cause. And take highly charged constructs like politics, law, or even environmental issues, such as the conservation of particular species. Oftentimes, intense feelings, traditions, and just flat-out stubbornness stand in the way of breakthroughs. Well, our guest today is someone who deals with such challenge on a daily basis, as an individual immersed in the world of science, discovery, and the fight for change relating to a cause she deeply cares for. All right, welcome to the show. So, Marika Dornhedge is the Chief Science Officer and founder of Ocean Eye, a platform that provides incentives from ecotourism to local communities to prevent poaching. She's also a scientific advisor to Churamura, an Okinawan marine conservation NGO. Holding a master's degree from the University of Oxford and a PhD from Sofia University in Tokyo, her expertise is in marine ecology with a focus on shark ecology. Marika has worked extensively with Japanese fishermen across the country on collecting data on the impact of fisheries on shark populations and establishing guidelines for sustainable fisheries. Her knowledge has gained her invitations to many global conferences as one of the leading experts on the status of sharks in Japan. And she's even published her research in various scientific journals, including Nature, and her public outreach ranges from podcasts much like this to documentaries and hosting for the Discovery Channel's Shark Week. And here's a sampling of but a few more things she sunk herself into. Creating the first global financial payments mechanism for wildlife conservation, which at its core targets the problems of unsustainable fishing and poaching. Japan country leader for the Global Fin Print Project, the largest global scale assessment of shark and ray biodiversity on coral reefs to date. Bridge the gap between the different stakeholders ranging from fishermen, fishery managers, and processors on Japan's largest shark fishery, achieving more sustainable management and policy. And finally, Japan Country Coordinator for Women for Oceans, an international marine conservation NGO. So with all that stated, Marika, it's an honor to have you on the program. Welcome. How are you doing? No, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be able to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've been going back and forth for a little while trying to line things up here. And uh, yeah, right from the get go, I was intrigued by just all that you do. And I think it's so unique within this market here within Japan to have somebody who's highly specialized in one specific area that, uh, yeah, I'm really, really keen, you know, just as a waterman myself out on the ocean quite a bit to to hear a little bit more of what uh, you've got to say about it all. So yeah, again, thanks for taking some time. In terms of, I guess, you know, getting things going, I do have the first segment lined up. And as my guests know, it's something called Coloring Wikipedia. 
And I just basically read off a definition of the guest profession. I do it for a couple of reasons. One, it brings everybody up to speed on what that job entails or what the industry is all about. And then two, it's just this nice launching pad into a discussion. You know, sometimes we as professionals, we own our position and might be a little bit different like what you do versus somebody who holds the same position in a different country, different company or elsewhere. So again, it's just kind of a nice point to, uh, to get things kicked off. So I do have you down here for a chief science officer. I understand we could have went with an entrepreneur, but uh, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later on. So let me just read that off, a chief science officer, and just consider all that you've done and uh, maybe you can comment after. Does that sound all right? Yeah. All right. Well, here we go. Chief science officer. A chief scientific officer, a CSO, is a position at the head of scientific research operations at organizations or companies performing significant scientific research projects. A CSO is typically responsible for envisioning and developing research capabilities, human and technological, for developing evidence of the validity and utility of research products, and for communicating with the scientific and customer communities concerning capabilities and scientific product offerings. A complete mouthful, but uh, maybe you can put this into plain English for people, because I think people outside of you know this world that you live within, a lot of that is just probably flying right over their heads. So maybe you can kind of break that down. Maybe that's the first point. It's really funny because actually this is the first time I've ever heard the official definition okay. of a chief science officer. How do Wikipedia fair? We never really thought much about it. Yeah. Um, so to clarify, Ocean, the founder of Ocean Eye is uh, my business partner and I'm a co-founder. I'm a co-founding yeah. member. And she's really the one, she's the one who owns it. She's on the business side, but of course, like as, as you've detailed, in Oshinai, we work with the ocean, we work with natural resources, and everything needs to have a scientific foundation. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're just not doing good work. And that's exactly what the chief science officer does. So yeah. the chief science officer makes sure the science behind everything is correct. It's legit. And that's, yeah. of course, why you will often find people with PhDs in the respective subject in those positions. And then, okay. for example, for me, uh, so for Ocean Eye, we would look at certain target species or like, okay, these are our flagship species. And mm. so the target species you want to collect data on, you want to monitor on. And it's me who, who determines which species we're looking at for, for different reasons. It could be because they're highly fished, it could be they're ecologically very valuable. Isn't so I'm the one who, who does that and collects all the data, who checks the data, who looks at the mm. literature and makes sure we select the right species to work with. And then my other function at Churamura, uh, which is mainly focuses on turtle conservation, but also general marine conservation in Okinawa, Japan, as a scientific advisor, I do the same thing. So okay. again, they're they're trying to collect data. So for example, they're trying to collect data on turtle nests and baby turtles hatching. And so when they started, someone was there with a clipboard and they're like, okay, let me write something down about this, these turtles hatching. And then they were like, what exactly should be we writing down? And I was like, okay, I'll, I will tell you. I'll tell you what you should be writing down. (laughs) So that's basically the job of the chief science officer or also the scientific advisor. Okay. Yeah. I think that brings it down to a level where, you know, the rest of us can kind of keep up with you on that point. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. 
In, in terms of, I guess you already mentioned it a couple of times, and I, I referenced it off the top here, Ocean Eye, this uh, this company that you just mentioned you co-founded. You know, this this platform is very unique, and it kind of caught my eye when I dug into it in terms of you know the incentives that it provides within ecotourism to local communities to prevent poaching, and it is, is quite compelling. And maybe this one might be might be a nice opportunity to learn a little bit more in detail, like how does that system work? Like what what are the levers that allows for this to, you know, have significant, you know, impact? And the, the 60 second summary. I think many of us are familiar that we, well, we have a problem with poaching in the ocean. There's shark finning, people collecting turtle eggs. And very often this happens in third world countries. And we also know why, because people are looking for a livelihood and often they don't have mm-hmm. an alternative. And so they're not doing this because they're evil. It is, it's just something that's there where they're, they're trying to make a living. And in the past, often NGOs, governments, they've recognized the problem and they try to combat this by saying like, hey, you fishing community, fishing village, we will give you donations, money from a government program or an NGO, so you please don't collect the turtle eggs anymore, yeah. don't fill in the sharks anymore. And in the end, if we look, I mean, humans are opportunistic, and donations come and go, so they're like, okay, nice, I will take the donation, and then when no one is looking at I mean, there's, there's a shark right there, so I might as well also fill it on top, there's no yeah. controls. So with Oceanline, we wanted to tie the two together because for those communities, a turtle egg collected and the shark fin harvested is still the most valuable thing for them. Mm-hmm. And what they don't really had access to is making money from these animals through tourism. Yeah. So they're not the ones who run the dive shops or the hotels who are like, hey, come stay in my hotel, snorkel on our yeah. house reef because we have sharks and turtles. They do not benefit from that. It's usually mm. foreign investors, foreign-run hotels and operations. Right. And we're like, so what we did is, and these operations also have really keen interest in stopping poaching. Because for them, sharks are a lot more worse for life than that. So we said like, hey, why don't you log all your sightings with the tourists in an app and when the tourists see them after the dive, you log it. And for every shark they see, for every turtle they see, you make a tiny donation mm. to the village. So if you don't see anything, no donation. If you see a lot, it's a few dollars. And that's how we tied the two together. And of course, for the tourists, it also becomes really interesting because once um, the system is more established. They can check in the app, like, oh, where are the places to see the marine life in all this, yeah. like mantas, turtles, sharks, and so on. Ah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Was that something that, you know, we might get into this later, but I'll ask right now. Was that something that sort of slowly developed that idea itself? Or was it something that sort of like hit you one day? Or is it like, no, nah, like th- this this could work, you know? It was the founder okay. who came up with the idea and we met at a hackathon and I was a presenting scientist at a marine conference in Borneo and she was there not as a scientist uh, but she has a background in ingredient Greenpeace for like many many years as a container and we got together for the hackathon kind of hashed out the idea more in the three days of ran well, I was also presenting my research on the side, <laughs> and then we made it into the finals because there are more people there. I 
experts who said like it sounds like this idea has legs so we got that's how we got our starting ground yeah and since then uh, we've been working on it yeah not not a shabby uh, few days for you there it sounds like some good presentations and coming up with this whole business model essentially that uh you can really make you know positive impact in terms of i guess like a, a typical day for you i know when we were trying to arrange this call you were off to visit an island off the coast of japan and speaking with representatives from a local fishery there like what what would be a typical day or even a typical week for you in your in your role as a cso I think when it comes to like marine biologists and uh, marine ecologists, I think we've all seen the, the meme, like what society thinks of you, what my parents think of you, and what I actually do. And I think what society and my parents think of you is like I'm, I'm diving with sharks every day. Every day, right? Yeah. And I wish that was true, but we also spend a lot of time in front of our computers. So mm-hmm. we're, user, uh, we're looking at data. Yeah. We're writing grant proposals because, of course, for research or for NGO mm-hmm. efforts, we're just looking for donations for grants to make these things reality. And then I have a new paper coming up as a co-author in Science magazine. It's a scientific journal, so the paper in Science. So for that as well, means, again, we're, we're sitting at the computer, we're looking at the paper we've written, <laughs> we're making edits. So a lot of that is, unfortunately, also we collect data in the field. And then things are very exciting. And then many, many days for answering emails, analyzing data, writing papers, writing research. Okay. And you mentioned the day, like you remember when I went to an island called Izena. So we did meet the managing director of the local fisheries cooperative. Very, very tiny island. I think mm-hmm. a few hundred people live on Izena. Oh, wow. But yeah. we still wanted to talk to him regarding travels. So we also deal a lot or we're looking a lot into the turtle data for Okinawa because there's really little right now. And mm-hmm. sadly, what happens with the turtles is, as you know, Japanese people like to eat seaweed. Mm-hmm. And they grow seaweed on farms. So they put big nets into yep. the shallow ocean. And the nets just give the seaweed something to cling onto. So big kind of yeah. net grids. And if you also like to eat seaweed, is uh, green sea turtles. Mm. Often at night, they will discover the nets in the shallows. They're going to come to the shallows to sleep. They see the nets and they're like, oh, food. And they dive down head first. And when unfortunately what happens on this, they get stuck. Uh, yeah. And then they drown. So we were asking, we were like asking them, like, how often do you find Donald turtles? And is there something, is there something you could change about the nets? So what we're doing there is we're trying to build relationships with stakeholders yeah. and like finding out kind of preliminary data, like, like how often are the drownings, what's causing the drownings, so that hopefully eventually we can find a solution to reduce that. Mm, yeah, I can imagine. I think there's a question that's going to come up later on in the talk, but imagine that being like a highly charged topic from your perspective but then also recognizing that you're if you're going in like guns a blazing and like why are you doing this you need to make these changes now 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 like obviously that's not going to work you have to be a lot more diplomatic i'm sure and sensitive to to some of their challenges and their issues yeah like i said this is probably going to come up later on but uh before we get into that though i do want to shift over really quickly into a different segment and it's a new segment actually it's called pathways and basically 
it's kind of representative of this idea of how people's careers don't always follow these linear paths. So, I mean, sometimes I do, but oftentimes I don't. There's a lot of left-hand turns, zigging and zagging, so on and so forth. So in terms of your backstory, I mean, how did you end up where you are right now? Maybe you could share with the listeners a little bit more in terms of, you know, what led you into this profession? I actually have two degrees or two specialties uh, because I have two passions in life. And like one was always the ocean. Mm -hmm. I grew up sailing a lot with my family. Um, I'm half Dutch, half German, so grew up near the North Sea. And we went sailing a lot. So it was the first thing that like water was most part of my life. And I started scuba diving when I was 14. Okay. And I always loved sharks. Like my mom showed me, she was saying, you know, kids were drawing like flowers and like stick figures. And she was like, you were drawing sharks when you were like eight. <laughs> yeah, I had this question down. Like this is definitely one of the ones I wanted to ask, you know, yeah. so I'm glad you're, you're going to spill the beans here. So, so, yeah. so that was, it was always there. And my first degree, my first bachelor's degree, was actually in communication because also I love writing. I love languages. I speak several languages. Okay. And um, so I had a degree in communication, and then I started taking like my major is communication, minor in environmental management. Mm-hmm. And my passion for the environment is, or especially the ocean, is always like the driving factor. But I think like if we look at kind of the Japanese the ikigai. My skill was always communication and especially mm. writing. So I had the two degrees. And for like a really, really long time in my life, I also worked as a journalist. And I'm chief science officer, but I also still work as a writer. Now I work as a writer for a research team. And that's something I've always enjoyed, just science communication. Okay. And like you said, degrees are linear and like often we like two things. And I think especially if we like two things, we have maybe a field of knowledge or a passion that comes together with another skill becomes quite powerful. Most definitely. I just had, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, podcast and radio program, uh, Radio Lab, WNYC Studios, one of the most influential podcast programs in the last 20 years. And one of the co-hosts, I was lucky enough to have a conversation with him and he was speaking of that point exactly of how for him, it was, you know, his career sort of began with this passion for a few different areas and things kind of much like what you're speaking about. But then as he progressed through, he began to like enter in some like logical thought and sort of like triangulating like what he could use his passion for. And then also some of his other skills and then education to position himself to do something unique and then land himself, you know, in his present day profession that he has right now. It was just kind of an interesting take because I think a lot of people often assume that it's either A, you have this like vision from childhood and this is the line, I'm just going to go after it. Or, you know, it's just all serendipity, I suppose, you know, and it's it's, it's not always A or B. There's a lot of in between, I think, in, in this. And it sounds like for you, at least, that that could be the case. My line was very much like I was doing a master's degree. Um, in environmental management then I was working as a journalist and I came back to marine ecology again in my PhD and they were always they were both there yeah how did I mean you mentioned already the languages you had a passion for languages but in terms of Japan Japan and actually moving to Japan going to university in Japan what what brought you here per se curiosity yeah (laughs) It was not planned. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not planned. I came to Japan in the mid twenties, so I'm not sure. Okay. Really liked it. I came. I came back for an extended period of time, and then I was introduced to my PhD advisor through okay. another environmental scientist, and she was like, "Oh, you know, this professor is looking for PhD student, and she works with the ocean, and she works with Japanese fishermen, and like maybe you should meet her." Okay. All right, and the rest is history. All right. Well, yeah. Yeah, I can certainly relate to that. I'm on the uh, the one year going on twenty year plan, so you're in Japan, so yeah, I can I can attest yeah. to all of that too. Yeah. <laughs> There's some staying power to the to the country and the culture and everything else that it offers. Okay, well, I would like to shift into another question here, and in terms of I guess you know getting back to what you're doing right now and you know shark ecology, and I'd reference this off the top where you often get called upon for these international conferences to go speak about the current state of marine biology and ecology issues within Japan and specifically with sharks. Now, what are people wanting to find out from you? And what are you telling people about this issue within Japan? They want data. So Japan really is a black box. And then if you look at Japan, we have a couple of factors that make it really, really interesting. Number one, it's one of the biggest fisheries, fishing nations in the world. Yeah. term of catch. Japan also has the 10th largest shark fishing in the world. Mm. And Japan has the highest shark biodiversity in the world. So in Japan, really? we found around just over 500 shark species, around 120 are found in Japan. Because Japan is not a big country, but you live here, you know the yeah. geography. We go from Kaido, which yeah. is almost Arctic, near Russia, all the way down to Okinawa, close to Taiwan and the Philippines is tropical. So we have so many different ecosystems, climate mm-hmm. zones, that we have really high biodiversity of sharks, at the same time, really, really large fishing effort. And then again, Japan is, culturally is a black box. So historically, Japan has often been closed off for long periods of time in history. They closed themselves off from the rest of the world and Earth that is still preserved in Japanese culture. They don't share as much. They don't share the data. And also in the scientific community, like there's Japanese shark researchers, there's Japanese fisheries researchers. They sit on committees. They, they sit on committees for fisheries and tuna commissions and so on. But outside of that, they often only publish their research in Japanese, and then it's not accessible yeah. for the rest of the world. And then I was here, and I was often at very large global marine conferences, the only one there who came from Japan. And then everyone was very, very interested. And to my surprise, I could amaze people with very simple data hmm. I had access to here, like data I was. I found in Japanese scientific journals or given by fisheries corporators or government reports and just like simple translations of the data sets or something like, oh, okay, it's this species and it's that volume. Mm. And so just people just really didn't have the access or the knowledge. Yeah, yeah. It makes all complete sense, you know, when you explain it that way. But it's really interesting. I mean, what sort of struck me was that the the biodiversity of the shark population in Japan, like, again, geographically speaking, it makes complete sense the way you just sort of outlined it. But you'd have no idea. You'd have no idea because you're right. Like, even in like mainstream media, like it's not even really covered. And there isn't a lot 
written about it. I mean, in terms of, I guess, ecology and those types of issues, Japan has infamously become, I don't know, associated with a few other things within that industry or, well, what they're doing, you know, with whaling or with even that, you know, that documentary, The Cove and Dolphins and different things. There's been a lot of content that's been written up about those types of issues, but the the shark population and, and whatnot and biodiversity in that sense, really not a lot, not a lot at all. Hmm. The, the folks over at Shark Week, they know very well. So if you look at Shark Week, of course, it's it's a mass meter, sensationalist, but it's a few species of sharks everyone wants to see on, on Shark Week. Of course, everyone wants to see the great whites. Yeah. People want to see tiger sharks. And then there's like another like more mysterious group of sharks that people really like is deep sea sharks. Hmm. I can find them here in Japan yeah. because also we have kind of all the depths portions. And when I get called for shark week, it was like, can you get deep sea sharks on camera? That's what they wanted because this is a hotspot. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. Really quick question, and this is a selfish one, <laughs> but I live right on the inland sea here. You know, and I think this is another point too. Like Japan doesn't, again, mass media, you know, and, and like shark attacks. And I know statistically they're very rare and especially within Japan, but it kind of strikes me as odd in the sense that like there is this massive biodiversity of sharks and yet, you know, the the reporting or the incidents with sharks and shark attacks themselves, you know, pales in comparisons to countries say like Australia or in within America or elsewhere. Could you shed a little light on that maybe just really quickly? So there's very, very, so as I mentioned before, there's over 500 shark species. Yeah. And the vast majority of them are not dangerous to right. humans. So if we have incidents, like we don't like to call them shark attacks, we like to call them incidents because that's what they really are. Mm-hmm. It's usually the same handful of species. Like sometimes yeah. it's great whites, bull sharks, oceanic whitetips, great mm-hmm. hammerhead, tiger sharks. Other types of requiem sharks. Requiem sharks are really like a sharky-looking shark. Okay. Uh, like um, lemon sharks, whale sharks, same category. Australia has a lot of whale sharks, mm. so that might put them high on the list. Florida is also high on the list. They have lemon sharks, tiger sharks, bull sharks. Mm. There's bull sharks here. There's tiger sharks here. Both of them occur in Okinawa. Why do we have less incidents? People go a lot into the ocean, they they dive, they surf. Sometimes it's geographical, Mm. Um, but I think also a lot of the shark species we find in Japan, like what I just listed, is deep sea sharks. Human swimmers are not going to come into contact with deep sea sharks. Yeah. It's it's just not happening. We're just not in the same depths. The whale sharks, like Okinawa is very famous for the whale sharks, not dangerous. Mm -hmm. They're big filter feeders, they only eat plankton. A lot of the sharks that more like in the Tokyo area is small coastal sharks, the dogfish, the cat sharks, these are like the little ones. Right. Yeah. So I think it's just even though we have the bull sharks and the tiger sharks, the species you, you mentioned, it's it's just really so rare. And there might be something I would have to look into what is different about Australia and Florida from Japan because we have the same species. Yeah. Now it's also tropical. Maybe there's slightly more surfers. Surfing mm. incidents are higher than diving incidents. It's, yeah. But still, it's mm. like we're, we're talking about Florida maybe has, I don't know, 10 incidents a year, and then Japan has two. So it's right. Still like yeah. It's tough to, 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I thought I'd throw that in there anyway. <laughs> Getting back to the talk, I suppose, in terms of Japan, and you brought it up already. I mean, their their fishing culture, the the history behind that, and then also too, like the the work that you're doing right now, and the evolution of science, and trying to understand and the the importance and significance put on ecology, especially marine ecology. You can see how there would be you know some friction between these two different groups or these two different types of ideologies, essentially. And I'd be curious to hear from your perspective, like how big of an issue that is in the work that you do. I would imagine it's always front and center, but uh, to, to hear from somebody like yourself would be uh, enlightening. It's the biggest issue. Yeah. The biggest threat to sharks is overfishing. Yeah. It's the biggest threat. The next biggest threat is habitat loss, but it's, that's tiny pales in comparison to the fishing threat. And then people are, I think the general population is already well aware that shark finning is a thing that exists and mm-hmm. that it's not good for sharks. And that's actually kind of only the tip of the iceberg because if we look at shark finning, we're assuming someone is going out and targeting sharks and only taking their fins. Yeah. And luckily, that is rare and has become increasingly rare thanks to global policy regulation. Mm-hmm. But what is still happening, and this really is the biggest threat, the biggest problem for sharks is bycatch. So bycatch means we have a fishery that, for example, targets tuna or swordfish. But then how, how do we get these fish in the ocean? Right. We use, for example, long lines. Mm-hmm. Long lines are, it's one long line, as it says, up to 100 kilometers wow. with thousands of hooks. Every couple of meters, we have a hook. We have like a 100 kilometer line. And we cannot control what is going to bite each of these baited hooks. They're hoping for the tuna and the swordfish, but it, as you can imagine, it's going to attract a lot of sharks, turtles, birds. It's mm-hmm. all sorts of marine life, and everything that we don't want is bycatch. Now, there are hundreds of lines, so we, we need to let out the line from the vessel. Letting it out alone, as you can imagine, takes a few hours. Then you let it soak mm-hmm. for the fish to bite, and then you reel it back in. So all of this takes hours, like you can estimate like it depends who's doing it there's regulations again not regulations are strict because we want more to buy catch to survive so we can release it but like about after 12 hours or so they bring back the line and then they might have turtles on there assuming we've never let the turtle go we might have seabirds um, mm-hmm. they've made new measures to reduce the seabird uh, catch rates let the seabirds go and you also have sharks but some of them they've been struggling on that line yeah. for hours and even if you let them go they might not make it. And also sometimes depending on the fishery and what the regulations they have, if, for example, it's a red hammerhead, oh, the red hammerhead is listed on sites, I cannot take it, yeah. I have to let it go. As a shark species, blue shark, okay, it's not very valuable, but I will still take it. And this is the biggest issue for sharks, is they're being caught in other fisheries. Um, like you've probably seen, you, you're in the supermarket, you're buying some tuna for your niswa salad, right. and you're like, Oh, this can says it's dolphin friendly. I'm going to buy that. It's probably dolphin friendly, but it's not very shark friendly. Okay. 
Okay. Would you say it's the like the the big fisheries, like the big companies that are the massive problem, or would it be the collection of these tiny little towns and like small little fishing villages that are spread out all across Japan, as you know, like collectively, I'd imagine they would add up to something too. What, what would you say to that? The bigger ones are a bigger problem. Yeah. Because they're the ones with the long lines and they are also the ones that use what we call per se nets. A per se net is drawn by several boats. Okay. Um, that make a big cycle that draw in the whole swarm of fish off the bonito. Okay. And a that massive net, you catch the whole ecosystem. Mm. And that's that's a really big guys. And then I did part of my research in smaller fishing villages. And that's just what they complain about because they have um, with the smaller vessels, they have, as you can imagine, smaller map nets, shorter lines. They also use sometimes a method that we uh, is known as pole and line fishing. Pole mm-hmm. and line fishing is imagine a medium sized vessel, a bunch of guys on deck, and they each have their fishing was a pole and line, each of them. So they, they pull in bonito one by one. And if they see, oh, but this is not a bonito, this is something else, they throw it back right away. So mm-hmm. the less industrialized, the more we we can discriminate if we are catching mm-hmm. with less soak times. And this is an issue not only in Japan, because they also, as the bigger fisheries moved in on the high seas, they also saw their catches going down. We've seen this in other places as well, for example, Africa, yeah. where we have local fishermen with small nets, they throw pole in line, and then as big fisheries from other countries moved in, offshore off their coast they saw their catches going down mm-hmm. okay okay well that's insightful i mean not the most encouraging but certainly insightful yeah I, I i do have another question i'd like to move on to something else here in in researching for this talk i came across a lot of inspiring tidbits of information related to you and your work and one thing that kind of caught my attention which i found really interesting was that back to ocean eye you know the company itself launched a series of 10 nft photographs in this collection called ocean eye chasing the beauty and it was taken by this award-winning uh, photojournalist and ocean eye associate paul hilton and the nfts were minted on the ethereum blockchain and i'm just curious about what you know what, what that approach was all about i'm sure there's several different ways that you could raise awareness for what you're trying to do but the the, the choosing of i guess the blockchain and, and nfts what, what, what was behind all that Okay, so Paul, Paul Hilton is one of our team members. And as a wildlife, award-winning wildlife photographer, he just has amazing photography mm. that we have access to. So basically, this first of all was right there. And then what Paul has done throughout his career is he not only captures the beauty of the ocean, but also the dark side. So the whole NFT collection has a dark and a light side. So we have the turtle on the coral reef in its natural habitat. And then we have the turtle that's been turned into a souvenir. Mm. And same with shark. We have the shark, the blue shark swimming in the ocean. And then we have the shark on on a dock being finned. So he, we did the, lights, the light and dark side collection to raise awareness and also as our project is still starting out, we're looking for donations for us as a way to give an incentive and also to give something back to people who want to donate to our project. Mm. Yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah, it really caught my attention there. 
I have one more question left in this segment here, and this is back to you, I suppose. I mean, again, I've referenced this already, but when we were lining up this talk, I sense a certain enthusiasm that you had right away. Like I could pick up on that passion, even in an email that you have for the work that you do. And I'd like to know, like, what what drives all of this? You know, again, you've kind of spoke to this in the beginning, I mean, your passions and whatnot, but what sustains it, I suppose, for you? Is it the, the impact that you can see that you're making or maybe you could share a little bit more on that? You know, one time someone asked me, and he was like, he was like, would you rather, and then he's like, would you rather, like, you have one wish, and then all the sharks in the world are protected, and, like, they will, not, they will never be finned again, nothing happens to them. Yeah. But then if your wish comes true, you can never go into the ocean again. Like, you can never scuba dive, <laughs> never free dive again. impossible questions, yeah. And then I was like, oh, of course I want the sharks to be protected. Yeah. So yeah. I don't like I've always really, really loved animals. And if I look at sharks, they're just so graceful and fascinating to me. Like I find them really beautiful. And the ocean is I never understood why we put like why we put so much money into space exploration when we have yeah. We have an alien world that we barely explored right on this planet. So I think for me, the exploration part, it's the beauty. And yeah, I love I love diving in the ocean. It's completely silent to me. It's like meditation. Mm. I love all of that, even if that, I mean, I have no genie that can fulfill my wish. But even if that ever would just become a distant memory and I cannot go back, I just see so much beauty in it and just like an intrinsic right to exist coexist with yeah. us. Yeah, it kind of brings to mind, I recall uh, James Cameron, the, the producer and director of Titanic, wildly famous film, of course. And years after he'd produced that, he'd set up a team to go back down, deep dive, like with this well, submarine, remote submarine to go down. And he was speaking about this. And one of his fascinations outside of just the Titanic itself was what you were just speaking of. Like this is an alien world down there. And it really, I think it led him on to other projects to just explore just the wildlife, like these deep sea creatures, because it is so foreign. It is so exotic that, uh, yeah, I can totally see how that would suck you into that world. It would, you know, fascinate you to no end or anyone who's involved with it. So yeah, I can, I could see that. And I could definitely see that. And for me, it's also like for some of the last last weekend like it was like i was not having a good day i wasn't feeling well and i was like i decided to do snorkeling and i was just floating in the water and on a different part of the reef we usually go on to where like i, I had been and then i saw for the first time ever in my life two african pompanos hunting and i've never seen them before i've never seen them in the okinawa i didn't even know they were there and then Mm. For me, that made my day. I was like, "Oh, did you see that from the Pompanos? They're they're a trevally that has just like long threads at the end of their fins. They look and they're very silvery and shiny. So they're really like beautiful to look at. And then I'm so excited. I was, I don't know how some people collect Pokemon, and it was like I saw that African Pompano. <laughs> so they, there's always something new. Like it never disappoints me. I can definitely, I can, I, I can understand that. I. I don't have no shared experiences, but I can understand what you're saying, you know, and uh, can appreciate all of that. So, well, we do have this middle segment here and you just shared a story. So I don't know if you want to use that, but it is a water cooler story segment. And I don't know if you have something else that you'd like to share with listeners relating to your work or we do we just want to count that last story as the uh, 
Mm, let's see another story I can share. Oh, so when I first started my research, young, dashing PhD student, of course, were like, oh, I want to change the world and, and all the fisheries, like which I know now is, of course, it's not possible. Um, but to me, fishermen were the enemy. And then I lived in a fishing village in northern Japan. Wow. And of course, I was working with them every every single day and i started to and some of them were very old old japanese fishermen they were over 80 and they're like oh, we're going to make fossils and fishermen they just like you learn how much tradition and everything there is behind it all and i remember what was really interesting to me i think as we they didn't like me in the beginning they were like what is this foreigner doing here and then yeah, she's going to talk and then she came here to tell us what to do. Like we've done this for decades. And then I think as, as I work with them, like every day, every day, and they get used to me, like seeing me in the village, seeing me on the dock. On the morning, like every morning, we became closer to each other. And like I remember in the beginning, like one of them, this really, really old guy. We had some discussion about shark finning, and I was like, "You shouldn't fin the sharks because it's not sustainable. You should use the whole fish." And then, like, he's fighting. He's like, "Oh, why don't you know? Why didn't you go back to Germany and tell like the German fishermen I can't fin the sharks?" And then, when I finished my research, I came back, and I hadn't been back for a while because I was in Tokyo when writing the thesis. And when I came back, I like came to the office, and he was like, "You're back, and you weren't here for months, and you you didn't tell me. Like, where were you?" <laughs> So I was like, oh, okay, you now, now you miss me. And I was like, very interesting how over like, course of a few years, we actually became friends and our discussions changed. And in the end, we actually talked about like, how can we make fisheries more sustainable? And I saw them agreeing with a lot of the things I thought I would propose, they were proposing themselves. They were saying, we should have size limits, we should have catch limits. We shouldn't um, fish sharks in areas where we know there's a lot of females when in the season they're yeah. pregnant. So everything's very natural. Like I learned they're they're really not the enemy at all. And then at, at the end of us all, as I, I presented my research, my thesis, he congratulated me and then he gave me a gift from like mm -hmm. many, many decades ago when he went on a fishing trip. He, he gave me a swordfish sword and then I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so like it's it's still in the house and people are like what's this and like it's yeah. a swordfish sword and old fisherman gave it to me so now it's like one of my proudest <laughs> possessions because it's like over years from like really not liking them or yeah. seeing them as the enemy like now I see them as and as a stakeholder we need to connect with yeah yeah it must have been such a valuable lesson outside of all the sentiment attached to it is you know a solid reminder for you moving forward when you're speaking with people and you're meeting them for the first time it's you know, it's putting that time in and really getting to know them and their issues, I suppose, and, you know, not putting the walls up right away and yeah. allowing the relationship to build so you can have these breakthroughs you know, down the line, perhaps. All right. Well, I do want to shift into our last segment here, actually, and it's something called a crystal ball segment, as the name implies. We're looking towards a future trends, predictions, so on and so forth. And in terms of things moving forward, you know, from an ecological perspective, like we all know, you know, we have issues, the climate crisis, the Great Barrier Reef was just in the news recently, I think, just today. I think Australia was trying to say that, yeah, no, it's, it's not that bad. It's really not that bad. But uh, some experts are saying, no, it is not in the best shape. <laughs> we need to take some action here. 
And then, of course, you have the decimation of fish stocks all around the world. So, you know, there, there's a lot of reason to have some pessimism moving forward, but also at the same time, there are, are reasons for optimism. And I would like to know a little bit more about Japan, per se, on that front. Like, how optimistic are you of the stakeholders within Japan, whether that be policymakers, whether it be these fishery collectives, you know, some of the people that you're working with, in terms of them coming around and putting policies or, or creating plans, agendas that can actually have impact and uh, have a positive benefit in terms of sustaining, you know, the, the ecological preserves within the waters of Japan? I've been in many different places in Japan and I've seen both good and bad. Yeah. So I can't like really say for like all of Japan, like the the port that I worked with from our PhD research in northern Japan is like this port alone actually makes up 80% of the shark fisheries in Japan. And they massively changed their regulations after they couldn't size limits, there were certain species that cannot be caught anymore. So that was a really, really big win. And then in other places we still have things like targeted shark hunts. So targeted shark hunts because they think tiger sharks are dangerous. Mm -hmm. Tiger sharks eat the fish they want to fish. So they don't kill the so they go out once or twice a year to kill the sharks on purpose. They're, they're not consumed, they're just like killed as trophies. And those are things I wish that would end. And so in one place I've seen great things happen and then another place I haven't yet. And I think it can still happen, but as you might also know, someone else who lives in Japan, things happen here very, very slowly. Yeah, yeah. And so I haven't given up hope, but I sometimes do wish things would move faster. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hope, let's hope. And uh, again, yeah, I'm, I'm conscious of your time and I've really enjoyed this conversation from start to finish. I can't believe we're already drawing to a close here. You know, I've probably got about 25 more questions I could ask you, but again, conscious of your time. And uh, I thank you immensely for coming on today and sharing all of your insights. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Like, as, as you can tell, I love talking about sharks and I like always love every, every opportunity I have to tell people a little bit more about the ocean because as you know we only we only protect what we love so yeah. thank you well for those interested in learning more about maraca and her work you can check her out her company ocean eye you can also find her on linkedin and also on instagram and also too if you like today's show please be sure to share i mean these issues that we're speaking of today you know they deserve to be put out there and more people hearing them you know the greater the, the chance of impact being made and agendas being pushed forward also too you can head on over to youtube i did launch a channel over there in the last year and the cool thing is we'll have an image overlay off the top where you'll be able to see some imagery associated with the talk so you can kind of take it in in a different manner and if you do please hit subscribe the channel could uh, use a bit of love there and then finally don't forget to tune into the next episode of life as a we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.